Welcome to the Animated Podcast with your host, me, Johnny Armstrong. And we've got a lot to cover in this episode, so we're just going to get right into it. I'm going to start off with the following extravagant truth claim. Christianity is true because it most adequately describes reality as it actually is. What is ultimately real about the universe and humanity's place in it. That's a pretty bold claim, isn't it? Does Christianity really best describe what is there, what the universe is, what a person is, and what has actually happened on planet Earth? Compared to what? Well, there's other religions or views that include a spiritual dimension to reality which represents the vast majority of people around the world. There are plenty of intersections between many of these belief systems, but also some very stark differences but they all recognize a transcendent aspect regarding the cosmos and the human experience, including our consciousness, that can't be reduced just to fundamental forces and elementary particles. There is something greater beyond and perhaps even within. But the purely naturalistic view excludes anything of a supernatural or spiritual dimension. Everything about the universe must be explainable only on the basis of natural occurrences with no input from or regulation by supernatural powers or any sort of divine consciousness. The stuff, including non-material stuff, and forces that organize the stuff into life are all that exists. Some might even consider agnosticism as something of a third alternative, which can be an honest answer for someone who either doesn't want to take a position, isn't concerned about whether or not God exists, or is convinced that there just isn't enough data to know either way. That can be an honest and humble position to hold, but the only truth claim the agnostic can make is that the truth about ultimate reality isn't knowable or perhaps even relevant to our lives, which makes his position the most rational one to hold. But what we're going to address has to do with the exclusive truth claim we led with, which puts Christianity at odds with the atheistic claims of the naturalist as well as that of the agnostic, who holds that nobody knows or even can know. Has Christianity historically made such a truth claim? Yes. Were those truth claims anchored to the teachings and pronouncements of Jesus of Nazareth and echoed by his earliest followers who then took the movement into the streets launching the church age? Yes. We're going to narrow our focus in the attempt to lay the groundwork for why it makes perfect sense to think that God has communicated directly with humanity and that the artifact of his initiating contact exists in the form of particular documents and manuscripts. And these serve as a resource for instruction about what is ultimately true and how to live. All in a single episode, so let's prepare to get after it. What's up? One of the most helpful things anyone willing to dig into and examine Christianity's rather provocative truth claims is to bone up on just a bit of basic philosophy. One of the most fundamental questions a human being can have is how we know and how we know we know. 
Can we know things to be true? And if so, how do we determine that we actually know that it's true? That's referred to as epistemology. Sounds like some twisty mind riddle, but it's actually pretty straightforward. We make decisions about things and base what to believe and then do on what we consider to be true. So getting our epistemology right is important. This happens at both the conscious and unconscious level of our decision-making and applies to mundane decisions we make, such as getting into our cars to drive to the supermarket, believing that our knowledge is sound, that the brakes are functioning properly. But this also applies to very weighty matters pertaining to one's overall worldview, doesn't it? You might not have ever taken a course in or read a book on philosophy, but you do have a worldview, a perspective of the world and your place in it. And because everyone holds some form of a worldview, everyone is a philosopher. First things first when it comes to a worldview. Our existence as the complex beings we are is just an extension of the issues related to how anything exists at all. Jean-Paul Sartre, the early 20th century French philosopher, noted that the basic philosophic question is that something is really there rather than that nothing is there. Why does anything exist at all? Why is there something rather than nothing? He was forceful in his contention that someone willing to think about the deepest issues can't sidestep the fact that things exist and that they exist in their present form and complexity. But probing a bit deeper into our observation and experience that the universe exists, I exist, and others exist, and we, human beings, are finite, we encounter a dilemma when it comes to humanity. What dilemma? Well, we exist as persons or personal beings having mind, will, emotions, and longings for things such as justice, virtue, love, and meaning, and even engage in abstract thought or artistic expression. That is a part of the human experience for all, regardless of their worldview, which is not a controversial statement. However, the challenge for any worldview is how to account for the fact that we as finite beings in a finite realm of existence experience things that are difficult to account for in any natural or material sense. More on this shortly. Okay, side note. The prevailing theories and models, and by a wide margin, are that the universe we inhabit is finite. It had a beginning and is dying a heat death. That said, research in the form of mathematical modeling and smashing accelerated particles into one another continues, and some have crafted very sophisticated theories that would allow for something other than the standard something-from-nothing scenario. Cool stuff, but the multiverse still requires an explanation, as does any cosmic environment featuring a set of properties that would initiate, lead to, or allow things such as inflation or oscillation to occur. But getting back to finiteness, Sartre lamented that nothing finite can possess meaning in and of itself without a point of reference outside of and beyond itself something behind or preceding or even causing it. So something finite that appears, exists, and then disappears lacks actual meaning unless it has a reference point that is infinite. 
But as an atheist, his version of ultimate reality included no transcendent, infinite point of reference, such as a timeless, self-existent being that is God, and therefore life is meaningless in the sense that people attach to the concept. Mere survival of the species or yourself and tribe is not the sort of meaning and significance that most people desire and sense about our lives, and that is what Sartre was contending. He was, like Friedrich Nietzsche prior to him, willing to own up to and face head-on his belief in a universe that was a closed system with no dimension other than the physical or natural, nothing transcendent in the form of a spiritual realm, an immaterial soul, divine consciousness, or supernatural beings. The natural consequence of that belief, which essentially holds that humanity is the result of a series of unguided happenstance occurrences among the elementary particles and forces, reduces us to machines driven solely by biology and genetics. And as machines whose actions are the results of gene-driven brain states, a form of determinism is unavoidable. What that means is everything related to what and how we think is ultimately traceable to our brains responding to cues having to do with survival adaptations. So it's not really you longing for love, liberty, justice, and compassion, and engaging in wonderfully abstract art and thought, but your brain coordinating activities that best promote survival. And one of the first things jettisoned with that set of beliefs, is any notion of free will as most of us intuitively sense and at least hope we have it. Read some of the works of more modern atheist philosophers, starting with the Enlightenment right on up through Nietzsche, Bertrand Russell, and now figures such as Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, and Daniel Dennett, and you'll see firsthand the maneuvers they must engage in to account for morality, virtue, altruism, human dignity, and human rights in light of their belief that free will is but an illusion. Fact is that no one can function well in society at large or in close interpersonal relationships living solely on the basis of a determinist or behaviorist psychology. One has to act as if he or she is free to behave in certain ways. But if we are just machines like the animals, then on what basis are we to strive toward virtues that have almost no direct correlation to mere survival adaptations? And how would that shape jurisprudence in our communities and societies? And why should my beliefs about some of the particulars in these areas carry more weight than anyone else's? For instance, why are we right and ISIS and the Nazis are wrong? Again, what most atheist philosophers or commentators will propose is precisely that morality is but a construct that works its way from the bottom up as a means of ensuring the survival of ourselves, our tribes, our species. But what does such a bottom-up view entail? Charles Darwin was very honest about the implication of his views as they applied to race, and warfare and the most shockingly violent movements in history, which occurred in the 20th century, the communist revolutions in Nazi Germany, emerged from a neo-Darwinist framework. And by the way, so did the field of eugenics, which is a form of social engineering by arranging reproduction within a population to increase the occurrence of desirable genetic traits. If we are but machines or animals, why shouldn't we? engage in that to make our species 
more formidable and more survivable. But what are we to do about humanity's perceived nobility, or whatever term one chooses, to describe what most sense as something special about the human race? What best explains humanity's various capacities for, and inclinations toward, virtue, views of justice and liberty, all of which are difficult to account for on the basis of gene-driven survival adaptations? There are two classes of answers to that question. Number one, there is no logical, rational answer. All is ultimately chaotic, irrational, and absurd. Sartre leaned in that direction, considering life ultimately to be absurd. It's difficult to hold this position consistently, both logically and in practice, because the external world is there and it has form and order. If everything were chaotic and unrelated, science as well as general life would be virtually impossible. To live at all requires the understanding that the universe is there, has a certain form, a certain order, and human beings conform to that order to function within it. One holding this position has to account for everything about our ordered existence that includes things that go well beyond the physical laws and constants. For instance, trying to account for aspects of the human experience and consciousness, such as intuition and various other senses, is difficult to anchor to pure biology. More on that shortly. Now, the second class of answers to that big question is that there is an answer that can be rationally and logically considered which can be communicated in such a way that a person can engage these matters with his own thoughts and then communicate to others externally through language, spoken, written, and even symbolic. This position acknowledges the fact that things exist, something is really there. And, as Sartre states, the basic philosophic question is that something is really there rather than that nothing is there. Now we get to three possible answers to this reality, that there are things that are there and that it has form and complexity as it exists now. Number one, everything that exists has come out of absolutely nothing. Or number two, all that now exists had an impersonal beginning, no mind behind the universe and everything in it, including complex living conscious beings. Or number three, the existence of the universe and emergent conscious life had a personal beginning, an intelligent, willing agent, a cause. Consider the first alternative. This is where we get into the issues related to how something as complex and dynamic as the universe can come into existence from a state of absolute nothingness. The late Stephen Hawking and current astrophysicists or cosmologists, such as Sean Carroll and Lawrence Krauss, among others, consider the quantum realm as having the answers for how something as sophisticated as the universe can pop into existence out of nothing, though this is very far from being worked out, as you can imagine. Granted, I am not a credentialed scientist, but I can read their papers and books and listen to their lectures, debates, and podcasts, and I have on all counts and will continue to do so, but I still have yet to hear the argument sustained 
how energy, mass, and motion can emerge apart from some sort of pre-existing state or environment that possesses properties. Not going to delve deeper into this here, so perhaps consider getting a copy of my book to examine this in more detail. Check the show notes. The second alternative argues that everything there is now, from stars to planets to carnations to humanity, is finally to be understood by reducing it to some original, impersonal factor or set of factors. The profound problem here is then attaching any meaning and significance to what now exists, including our lives. If we begin with the impersonal, we cannot have some form of teleological concept which has to do with purpose and meaning. Theories of how time plus chance, beginning with an impersonal cause, that can produce the needed complexity of the universe that includes the personality of human beings must reckon with a whole host of issues. Let's start with the physical and perhaps as that relates to origins. Everything in the known universe is subject to entropy, dying a heat death, but the origin of life and its ongoing development into more complex acting, thinking, theorizing, technologizing, if that's a word, beings, goes in the opposite direction. To account for this, computational physicists may trot out very elegant-sounding theories about how it can be reduced to simple mathematical constructs that, in essence, propose that these laws, such as the geometric unity set forth by Eric Weinstein, are what have led to the universe and living things. How is it truly rational to believe that the existence of laws and regularities that can be described or broken down into mathematics are supposed to have creative power? What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Where do the laws and the regularities behind mathematical structures come from? And now into what the literature refers to as the mind-body problem of consciousness. An atheist such as Sam Harris goes to great lengths to make the case that everything about your thoughts of self in relation to the universe and others are nothing more than brain states. You can find this in his books, The Moral Landscape, and also Waking Up, A Guide to Spirituality Without Religion. He considers that your concept of self is but an illusion. You do not have a brain. You are your brain. You are a machine moving in accordance with complex neurology. Now, he's a, a neuroscientist. You are not some sort of homunculus crouched behind your eyes, staring out at the world, which is one way to conceptualize the soul, but a very complex bundle of atoms and molecules determined by gene-driven impulses to behave the way you do. Well, doesn't that mean that Sam can't help but having and advancing these views? He is biologically determined to hold these positions, but it sure has worked well for him since he has achieved fame and fortune by trying to talk people out of religious beliefs that they can't help but hold anyway. Do you see the conflict that emerges here? If humanity is nothing but biology, then there really is no I who is free to make determinations about the ultimate questions. And if that's the case, then it's fair to ask how truth claims about almost anything can be evaluated. 
But regardless of how sophisticated and elegant the theories attached to an impersonal beginning might sound, they can't escape one of the chief problems philosophers of science continue to wrestle with, which is what relates to unity and diversity. Allow me to explain. You may have heard the term, or at least the concept, of a theory of everything, which was also a title of one of Stephen Hawking's books, that is also referred to as final theory, ultimate theory, or master theory. This is an attempt to come up with a single, all-encompassing, coherent, theoretical framework of physics that fully explains and links together all the physical aspects of the universe. You know, simple stuff like that. Christianity provides a unified theory that is logically consistent, matches what we can observe and measure about the universe, not pictures or material samples of God or angels, mind you, and relates to our experience as personal beings. We'll touch on a few of those specifics shortly. But an impersonal beginning faces increasing challenges the more we learn about a universe that features the regularities and constants we call laws, which extends right into any discussion regarding the origin of life with its elegant biochemical structures that are based upon coded information, DNA. Of course, if you start with the presumption that there can't be anything outside the system to account for, not just the system itself, that's a huge deal, but everything within the system, then you'll have to just keep working and crunching the numbers to develop a coherent framework. The main challenge at this juncture has to do with how to account for the origin of information, and that is a massive issue to try to deal with. Not going to go deeper into this here, so check the archives for episode 10 from February of 2020 for more details on the current state of origin of life research. Fact is, anyone who thinks biologists and biochemists have everything worked out regarding how to account for what is needed for life to spontaneously emerge from non-life and then evolve into conscious, self-aware life is mistaken. Life is code. Code is information. The only source we know of for information is a mind. Now someone might say, A computer or another form of artificial intelligence can generate code or algorithms, so maybe that's kind of how things happened at the natural level. Just give Neil deGrasse Tyson, Bill Nye the science guy, and other brilliant scientists time, and they'll figure it out. Would that it was a sample. Would that it was a sample. Would that it was a sample. Would that it would that it was a sample. Watch my mouth. Would that it was a sample. Would that it was a sample. Keep your head still. Would that it was a sample. If it were just that simple, first of all, a computer or whatever algorithm generator you come up with is the result of targeted design. A mind envisioned, designed, and then hit the go button to get the information generation in motion. And that doesn't even come close, remotely close, to answering questions connected to how matter could have organized itself into life and then conscious life, apart from targeted, goal-directed coding behind the whole show. It's mind-boggling, at least for one who insists on an impersonal beginning. But for the Christian 
or Jew, Muslim, Hindu, or adherent of another theistic belief system, there's a rational, logically consistent explanation that in no way dispenses with a rigorous understanding of the scientific method. Again, I contend that the more we learn, the more we see evidence of goal-directed info at every layer of the cosmos, which points in the direction of a mind behind it all. So going back to the unity-diversity issue, the impersonal beginning that accounts for something of a grand universal, think of the universe as the great universal environment, comes up short in accounting for the diversity of things in the universe, especially in terms of living things. So even though living things share elements with the cosmos, we're all made up of star stuff, the question remains as to why your life should mean something. Are human beings truly significant? And if so, why? This is the dilemma. If we are nothing but the product of unguided processes, then where do we locate true meaning and significance to our lives other than what relates to survival? It would appear that meaning is lost or that it is just an illusion, a noble fiction. Man is lost. So let's evaluate the position relative to number three that the cosmos and all in it are a result of the willing actions of an intelligent, presumably immensely powerful being or beings. Now, if we go simulation hypothesis, like the matrix, or that another race of beings seeded Earth, then the question simply gets pushed up and out a few levels. Still have to account for the existence of whatever or whoever is running the sim or sowed the seeds. Some will say that the God hypothesis leaves one with a similar question. Okay, Mr. Smarty Pants Theologian, if God created the universe, then who, pray tell, created God? Well, that's actually a fundamental mistake that telegraphs one's misunderstanding or lack of sufficient engagement with the Christian belief system. So let's pivot to that and examine why one should be willing to believe that Christianity provides an explanation that is logically consistent, relates to the physical universe we inhabit, and is relevant to how we experience life as human beings. A personal beginning to the universe entails the following. A being or beings possessing mind, will, and tremendous power. Remember, if the universe, or the multiverse for that matter, came into existence at some point in the distant past, this includes the very concept of time or space-time. Read or listen to the literature and you are going to see how the entire space-time continuum is something of an effect. So if there is a personal beginning, such as the God of the Bible, this being would best be characterized as timeless, spaceless, and uncaused, fully self-existent. In touching on the unity and diversity issue we spoke of, it is reasonable to consider that this being would somehow possess or reflect these traits, not merely in an abstract or conceptual way, but would exist as a sort of composite unity. That is indeed a profound idea, but it is logically consistent. This personal being, God, did not need to create. God does not need the universe as the universe needs him. Why? 
because within the nature of God, there is a composite unity. And this is where the Christian doctrine of the Trinity emerges and provides a rational answer to the question. With the doctrine of the Trinity, unity and diversity is God himself, a loving community of three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, yet one being. That is what the Trinity is, and nothing less than this. It's important to note that the early Christian forefathers and theologians didn't invent the Trinity in order to give an answer to the philosophical questions which the Greeks of that time understood very dynamically. To the contrary, the unity and diversity problem was there, and they realized that in the Trinity, as it had been taught in the Bible, they had an answer that no one else had. They did not invent the Trinity to meet the need. The Trinity was already there in the scriptures, and it met the need. And this brings us back to that lofty truth claim we started with that Christianity is true because it most adequately describes reality as it is, what is ultimately real about the universe and humanity's place in it. No other philosophy or religious construct has ever given us an answer for unity and diversity. So when people ask whether a Christian should be embarrassed intellectually by the Trinity, which is indeed wonderfully complex, he or she can speak from within the framework of what best accounts for unity and diversity. Every philosophy has this problem and no philosophy has an answer. Christianity does have an answer in the existence of the Trinity. The only answer to what exists, the universe and conscious beings who reflect on what life is and means, is that the triune God is there. Now the issue becomes as to whether or not this God has made himself known. Has this infinite being revealed himself to finite beings in such a way that they can know about him, his nature, his character, how best to relate to him, and how best to live as those he created? If we are going to have these answers, then God must not be silent. There is no use having a silent God. We would not know anything about him. So the question becomes as to whether or not God has spoken and told us who he is, that he existed before all else, and that he created human beings in his image, which provides answers regarding the existence of what is. We have answers because the infinite personal God has not been silent. He has told us who he is. He has spoken and the artifact of his revelation was transmitted, recorded, and preserved in human language. It is the biblical record. If that is true, and I think there is good evidence to believe that it is, then it is reasonable to consider reading and reflecting upon the writings that make up the Bible, which includes almost every literary genre, historical narrative, letters, poetry, teachings regarding ethics, philosophy, and truth claims. Doing so regularly can have a tremendous effect on your thought patterns. How so? Well, as you read various accounts that include the writer's perspectives on what happened, 
what it all means and how it affected their life approach, you will see that when the infinite personal God himself works in history, he works in a way that confirms what he has said about himself and the world. When God works in the flow of history, which is almost always within the natural laws of the world as he made it, miracles are exceedingly rare in the biblical record, although if God exists, it is reasonable to believe that miracles can occur, he does so in a manner that is consistent with the way he says the world really is and what human beings ultimately need, which is reconnection with the transcendent creator who made us for the very purpose of having that relationship. So in the Bible, we have two things. We have teachings, and we also have what makes us realize that God works in certain ways and has provided us with a record containing what we need to know in terms of how best to approach our multifaceted lives. If you are someone who, like most around the world, senses something of a spiritual dimension to our existence, perhaps you hold to one of the big five, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism, then it's not much of a stretch to consider reading select passages of the Bible. Especially when it comes to the accounts of Jesus' very public teachings, ministry activities, and predictions, and the spectacular events surrounding his execution and reappearance found in the Gospels to see how it may relate to your perspectives on life and truth right here and right now. For someone who has never read the Bible and is interested in having a look at the heart of Christianity's truth claims, a great place to start is with the Gospel of John. It is divided up into 21 relatively short chapters that most can read in 10 to 15 minutes or less, which allows for some time to read and reflect on the material each day and get through it in a few weeks. I'll have a link in the show notes for where you can download a copy of the Bible onto your mobile device, as well as a great site you can access from your computer. Of course, you can always get yourself an actual paper copy of the Bible, which is still the world's best-selling book. When you encounter things Jesus said or did that are puzzling or even downright mysterious, and you will, consider asking someone you know who has been on the path as a Christian for some time to shed light on it and explain why it's relevant to them. What you may find that this person, perhaps someone who has spent a fair amount of time and energy studying and analyzing the Bible, refers to other passages in the Bible as a way to illuminate a particular issue or concept. This is because there is cohesion among the dozens of manuscripts that compose the Bible such that a common thread runs through the entire narrative. Spend enough time in there and you'll see the connecting points emerge. As one who has been reading and studying the Bible for over 40 years now, which means I've read it cover to cover dozens of times in some books or manuscripts hundreds of times, I still encounter fresh insights that apply to my life in every area of what it is to live in the modern world. It truly is a timelessly applicable document or set of documents. Now, a quick word on the concept of faith that can trigger deep-seated skepticism. After all, isn't faith really just a suspension of rationale that requires parking one's intellect and accepting things for which there is no actual evidence? I'm afraid you couldn't be more wrong. <laughs> Quite to the contrary, 
faith as characterized by the Bible's writers and those they quoted, which includes key figures such as Abraham, Moses, King David, the prophets, Jesus Christ, and the apostles, is not an eyes-closed leap into the dark, but a wholehearted, life-altering belief in light of good evidence that such trust is warranted, that it makes good, logical sense to believe it's true. Jesus never expected anyone to follow him blindly, but invited, and still invites, a person to make an eyes-wide-open decision to join a movement that is, by default, a renunciation of complete self-rule, to say to him, command me, and begin ordering life in accordance with the things he said and did, which includes how he related to God and other people to the very best of your ability. Now, you may consider yourself to be a believer in and follower of Jesus Christ, a Christian in other words, then you should be willing to ask yourself how it is that you can grow spiritually, grow in your relationship with God. Just like deepening your relationships with other people that require time, attention, and some sacrifice, so it is with a relationship with God as the person. One of the non-negotiable elements of that is to be intentional to submit your thinking about the world, yourself, and other people under the norms of the Bible as the record of what God desires for you in terms of how best to live, how best to think, which again translates into conduct, behavior. Doing that leads to thought patterns that are guided by transcendent truths as opposed to what is being bellowed into our consciousness by a world whose agenda rarely aligns with what leads to inner peace, harmony, and contentment that is lasting. Until next time, cheers to you as you do your level best to live in a way that harmonizes with what is ultimately true about yourself, the world, and your place in it. Seek truth, live truth, help others find their way, and love your neighbor. It'll change things in our communities. Peace.